think that money is being always pitched to founders at varying levels of, of sexiness. And VC has been able to create this education about itself that to take VC money is a very sexy thing to do. You actually also have a growing movement around the, the, the pros and the strengths of growing uh, in a bootstrapped manner. And, and that that's, an, that's a sexy way to grow. You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting with Michael Slauson. Michael is the head of growth at Hum Capital. Hum Capital is a very uh, new and innovative marketplace for companies to find investment and to raise money. And we're going to talk all about that. And prior to Hum Capital, Michael was a business development manager at uh, Grand Data. And before that, he was at uh, Deloitte as a senior consultant for a couple of years. So with that, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paris. I am excited to be here. So let's start with Hum Capital. Uh, when I came across Hum Capital, uh, I was very intrigued. This is a very different model. Can you just give us an overview of what Hum Capital is doing and, uh, and how it's different than the traditional fundraising for companies? Yeah, I think the easiest analogy for Hum Capital is to think of Kayak.com and what that does for helping people book flights and other travel needs and the travel providers uh, to find the demand for their services. So we have taken the fundraising concept and built a marketplace for companies to find capital providers intelligently and for capital providers to have conversations with companies that fit their investment criteria. And our focus has been on debt in the last year. Uh, we, we launched this marketplace. We've helped companies, uh, about 50 companies raise about $500 million. Um, that includes a few high ticket deals. Uh, and it's, uh, comparable to investment banking in, in the modern day, a modern day spin on investment banking um, mm -hmm. is what we're trying to create uh, for the experience that we're trying to create for companies. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. And last, thing really I'll say cool. is, last thing I'll say on that is uh, we, we really focus on the middle market. So companies that are trying to raise less than a million dollars, there's many options for them out on the internet. Companies that are trying to raise more than $50 million, Wall Street will take very good care of you. It's in that middle middle part of the, the maturity curve of a company where we feel that there needs to be a service like this. Um, it's too expensive for Wall Street, but you're looking for more capital or it's more your business is more complicated than a $500,000 line of credit does service to. 
I understand. Well, that's still a pretty big window between a million and 50 million. This is true. Yeah. What, what is a typical stage of a company that would come on to Hum Capital? So if they're looking to raise, so you said that you did about 50 deals at 500 million, putting the average at around 10 million. Is that about right? Or are there some outliers that skew that? that there are outliers. I think our average deal size is somewhere in the five to $8 million range. I actually don't know that number off the top of my head. Uh, we've done a few larger deals, but mostly companies that, I would say at least have $5 million of revenue run rate and they don't necessarily need to be profitable. Um, in fact, a lot of companies that look for growth financing obviously are not yet profitable and aim to use the financing to get it to a profitable state. Um, so that's where our engine really digs in and understands the underlying unit economics of the business. Uh, this is This is why you and I started to have an interesting conversation, you know, unit economics really matter for, for capital providers uh, mm -hmm. because if a company can profitably acquire customers, even if the business itself is not yet profitable, um, you can use financing to, to scale into a more profitable place. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue into, into the marketing piece. We obsess over unit economics and the two real Buzz KPIs are LTV and CAC. Mm. Um, are those the, the, for the investors that are on your platform? Are they looking for this magical LTV to CAC ratio, or they're looking for a sign that you can get to some ratio? And if so, what what is that ratio that people want to see? So, no, no two businesses are the same. Uh, LTV to CAC works for a, a category of businesses that have an LTV and have a CAC, uh, but yeah. sometimes you have uh, companies that acquire customers on say a quarterly basis, or um, there's, there's different kind of frequencies of customer acquisition. So other, another metric that we look at is called the multiple on invested capital. And essentially that's a, uh, a cohort based analytic that looks at per, per usually per month or sometimes per quarter, how, how much went into acquiring customers and how much value do they, do they generate for the business over time? Um, and so we, the MOIC or the, uh, that's what the friendly acronym that we use, uh, mm -hmm. is another metric that, that, that investors care about. And then a third one would be, um, the magic number and a magic number is a measure typically on a quarter by quarter basis of, um, the profitability of customers acquired in that in that quarter. So there's a few different metrics, depends on the business. They are essentially trying to address the same question of, does this company acquire customers efficiently? And maybe how big is, how big, how much bigger can they get uh, with these unit economics or maybe improved unit economics? Well, that's, that's a good way to think about it sales and marketing or, or growth, you know, if you have efficient unit economics, what that is saying is you can probably grow what you're doing without any additional R and D or uh, product development. If you, mm -hmm. if you aren't in a good place with unit economics, and that means you probably need to think again about your business model and, and suggests you may not be to um, product market fit to the degree that you need to 
at least to grow with something like non-dilutive financing and therefore need to be looking at equity, uh, which is used to finance riskier activities. Understood. Well, let's touch on that for a second. Non-dilutive versus dilutive. Uh, that's, um, can you just explain that to me and, and what kind of, what, which way do you all lean at Hum Capital, uh, dilutive or non-dilutive? Yeah. So I, I, I think that there are, you can think about it this way. There are three ways to finance a business. You can finance a business with your own cash, which is in the modern day called bootstrapping. You can finance a business with debt, which is debt financing, or you can finance a business with equity, uh, which is when a venture capitalist or an investor just writes you a check in exchange for some portion of the company. Um, so dilutive financing is equity financing, more or less. And what you're, what you're basically saying to yourself and to, and to the market when you raise dilutive financing is that you want to grow quickly. You want to give away a portion of your company to finance that growth. And, uh, and you want basically to finance something that is a very risky activity because you don't actually know if you can pay back the investors um, and, and you, you, so you don't want to enter into a formal obligation to pay them back. In exchange for that, the equity investor participates in upside with you. Uh, now, the difference with debt financing is in a typical, in a typical credit facility, the lender is agreeing to give you capital in exchange for you repaying the principal plus interest. And so actually debt and non-dilutive financing uh, are often used by companies to finance less risky activities because you're, you're asserting to yourself and to the market, we are confident that we can use this $5 million loan facility to pay for activities that will allow us to repay the investor. And so you actually end up, you know, a wide variety here, but you end up paying five to 15% back to the capital provider. Whereas with equity, the true cost of that capital can sometimes be 30, 40% when you factor in the costs of dilution. Understood. And uh, what, what type of deals are you p- predominantly doing at Hum Capital? Which, which are those? So we, we've led with debt over the last mm-hmm. year. We just had a press release. We have a broker dealer in place and, and we support equity transactions now as well. It's newer for us, uh, but we started with debt because we, in over the last few years, saw an explosion in the availability of al- non-dilutive alternative financing. And um, it's our observation was that it's confusing for founders to know what should I actually do? What is what is the cost of the capital that I should be bringing into my business? And um, you know, is this alternative financing actually a good fit for me, or am I going to be tying up my balance sheet, or am I going to be you know bringing in too much or too little? Um, so we started with debt, and and now we've branched over into equity. When you say alternative financing, are you referring to the non-dilutive debt financing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything that's not the the yellow brick road of of VC financing, I I think gotcha. of alternative financing. The stuff yeah. that TechCrunch doesn't write about, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um 
But yeah, that's a, I think that's probably a consideration that a lot of entrepreneurs that are early in their journey maybe don't seriously consider, which is first asking yourself, how confident am I that we're going to make this work? And if, if you're really confident, you ought to take debt financing because you know you can repay that and then you don't have to, you don't have to carve out equity and dilute yourself. Um, but I think that there's such a natural urge to, well, number one, to make the TechCrunch headlines. And, um, and probably you have more suitors. I think my sense is that the, the dilutive equity-based financing led by these VCs, I think that the VCs are pursuing those companies. And so when you're getting calls every day or every week, from VCs and maybe you're just thinking, all right, this is either I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do it or, or what's the right timing. But maybe at that point, you don't really factor in that debt financing is a, is a legitimate um, third option. Yeah. I think that money is being always pitched to founders as at varying levels of, of sexiness. And VC has been able to create this education about itself that to take VC money is a very sexy thing to do. You actually also have a growing movement around the, the, the pros and the strengths of growing uh, in a bootstrapped manner. And, and that that's, an, that's a sexy way to grow. I think mm -hmm. that if I, had, if I had one dying wish uh, during my time at Hum Capital, it would be that, that founders get away from get away from what is the most attractive dollar and really think about what is my plan what do i want to accomplish and how am i going to finance that it may be that i don't want to become a unicorn i think i want to grow my business into a 50 million dollar business or a 100 million dollar business and so i'm going to flex strap you know so i'll mostly bootstrap but i'll also take a little bit of equity to maybe pay for a product that I want to build, or I'll take some debt to help me grow this profitable thing that I've set up a little bit faster than I would be able to myself. Or they may, or the founder may say, I do want to grow into a unicorn. And I do want to, I do want to take all of the stress and, and excitement that comes with series A, series B, series C, and the expectations that come from bringing on outside board members. Um, and and I want outside board members and I need connections and therefore I'm going to go down the traditional VC route. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but I think that being really the most important thing in life is knowing what you want and being really clear about that uh, allows you to navigate your balance sheet and capitalizing your business in a way that you won't regret when you look back two years from now and realize you've overly diluted yourself and there's no way mm -hmm. to get that equity back. Right. Yeah. There, there is no undoing that decision. Uh, when you, when you give away equity, that's permanent, isn't it? Yeah. yeah the die is cast at that point. Yeah. And also correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my understanding of this is that debt financing always takes the first position. So if a company has both debt and equity financing and something, uh, let's say things go south, the company, the company goes under, the debt, the the debt holders get get paid first, and then the equity equity holders get whatever's left. Is that right? That is one hundred percent true. Yes, mm -hmm. debt debt sits on top of equity in the capital stack because uh, debt doesn't participate in the upside. Uh, I mean, right. sometimes you have debt that the lenders will get a warrant, and you know they'll have a small small sliver of upside in the business, but. Uh, 
debt sits on top of equity. So equity investors all have different opinions about debt. Some of them think it's a great way to grow. The flip mm -hmm. side of what you just said, Paris, is that because debt is not dilutive, you can actually use it to leverage up an equity position. And, mm -hmm. um, and some investors like that because it's a way for them to juice returns out of a business. Mm -hmm. Downside is that they are not in the first position. If the company doesn't do well, then their recourse is, you know, limited and, and they won't, they may not be able to recoup their investment, but right. equity investment is risky inherently. So. Sure. Yeah. What is a traditional sequence if companies that you're seeing coming in and I guess they're, so they're between a million and 50 million that this mid market, do many of them already have some form of equity and then they're laying, layering debt on top or is it more typical to, to do debt first and then equity or I don't know how, how yeah, does that I sequence the, normally go? I think the most common thing that you would see that we see is that they have just raised uh, equity and they're trying to basically build a cushion around that equity raise by, by adding some debt onto their balance sheet. Okay. But that's, that's a plurality. I would say that's not the majority. We see companies that uh, haven't raised for a long time, don't really plan to raise equity and just want a, a, a debt facility to help them grow. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and maybe, and then we also see, we also see companies take debt to help them bridge so the, the cool thing about debt is that it's not a, it's not priced. You don't price or revalue the company when you take debt. Uh, so you can use it to jump from one valuation to another. If you're in a place where you feel like, oh, I'm not super confident in my valuation. I, you know, I don't want to bring in equity right now because I think it would be too dilutive. Uh, you can use debt, execute on that plan, make your business gotcha. more valuable, and then go raise equity. Yeah. Get that multiple a little bit higher before you go out for equity. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe that's another one of the sexy components of equity financing is that you finally get to see what your company's worth, right? That is true. That's yeah. true. And and the fact is, you know, we were talking about this a little before. There has never been a better time to raise money in the history of the world than right now. The equity markets are extremely frothy. You know, VCs are chasing are, are are chasing opportunities, and there's so much supply of venture capital mm -hmm. that there's never been a better time. And so, and so, you know, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be considerate of your cost of capital, and that you shouldn't be thinking about you know the the appropriate balance of equity and debt for the stage of business that you're at. Uh, but you know, if I was starting a business right now, I might go take some money because. Mm -hmm. uh, because I can get equity for cheaper than it's ever been available tr mm -hmm. truly in the history of the world. If that's true for equity, why isn't that true for debt right now? Well, I think that it is also, um, well, this is, this is delving into some macroeconomics. I, I know we're going to, yeah, we're definitely going macro now because I mean, my next <laughs> question was, why is that? I mean, why is it the case that there's too much money out there now uh, yeah. in the VC world, are the alternative investments are just not attractive anymore, or what is well, it? Well, I think I think that it, uh, so debt, I believe, is affordable. I mean, until until inflation of the last six to twelve months, uh, you know, debt's 
think about the mortgages that were being offered to people as they were buying homes. Debt has been very cheap. Mm -hmm. um, inflation is going to drive that up. And, uh, and then to your question, why is there so much capital? I think a lot of money is moving from the public markets to the private markets in recognition of the fact that the available alpha, which is a term of, you know, the, the outsized uh, gains to be had in the public markets, mm -hmm. it's getting very, very thin, uh, where, where in the private markets, because there's, um, really because there's less transparency and, you know, there's less liquidity, it's mm -hmm. easier to find really good deals. So a lot of money is a lot of big money. Institutional money is, is looking into the, the private capital markets and, and also in the private credit markets yeah. uh, in a way that they haven't before that increases yeah. lowers the cost. Yeah. So if you think you're going to crush it with an IPO now, think again, because the, the venture capitalists have already sucked out all the alpha, right? Yeah, I, well, I don't no, want that's to be a little too, bit of a, okay. I, I don't want to be too grim. Statement. I don't yeah, want to be yeah. too grim. I mean, the, the modern marvel of capitalism is truly impressive and I'm optimistic about it, generally speaking. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's the case that most of the value has been extracted from private investors uh, mm -hmm. along, along the journey before a company goes public. Yeah. At least, uh, at least the, the past value. The company mm -hmm. still could generate future value and you know make great make great strides. So I wouldn't lose all hope, but, yeah. but I think your characterization is true, Paris. Right. Um, so let's talk about marketing. And I assume that an investor who's who's on Hum Capital's platform and companies, let's say companies got product market fit that's pretty well established. They've got some good unit economics with some decent marketing in place, but what is the state of what is the state of marketing for most of the companies and the deals that you're that you're doing there? Um, are they are they just getting some initial marketing going, or do they have do they have big marketing teams? Do they have big budgets already? How does that look? Yeah. So my least favorite answer is it depends. So I'm I'm not going to yeah. say that, but I'll give you a couple of generic case studies. Uh, I think typically companies do have a, a marketing. And I think of marketing and sales lumped together when it comes to when it comes to the question of financeability of a company. Mm -hmm. They usually have an acquisition strategy in place. They have a retention strategy in place. They're they're able to layer their sales and marketing activities together in a reasonably healthy way to guide mm -hmm. customers from the top of the funnel to 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 the bottom of their funnel. Um, I think that for especially for debt, that's as we've discussed, really important because if those unit economics are inverted or not positive enough, it's very difficult to make a case for being able to grow with debt and the mm -hmm. company being in a better off space, better off spot at the end of that uh, spend than than they are at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, yeah, when, when you just break it down, that debt is just going to get added straight to CAC, isn't it? So if, you're, if your CAC is already a little too high and, and you, you, have to, you have to burden that with more debt, well, then well, something's wrong. I mean, you got to figure that out. So you already have to come in with a little bit of headroom that your CAC is even lower than where it needs to be, really. And then you can layer on um, some additional debt and still 
have that look good and, and be able to scale it? Well, this probably goes without saying with, with your audience, but uh, I, I find that companies are often, I don't want to say not honest, uh, but the, the way that CAC is represented and the way that LTV is represented are, are often puffed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, puffed up in the case of LTV and slimmed down in the case of CAC. And, you know, one of the things that our platform does is it actually goes in, we, you know, line by line, read a, a QuickBooks statement. We, we, we sync with a QuickBooks or a company's financial records. And so, you know, I think investors will almost always lean towards a conservative interpretation of CAC and LTV, and they'll mm-hmm. want to understand, you know, what really does it take to go and acquire a customer and how valuable truly is the customer. And mm-hmm. I think it's up to the founder to tell a story around if there are cohorts that aren't performing well to say, well, these are, this is why those cohorts didn't perform well. And if you see here, here's this subset of customers who yeah. you know, are really juicy for us. And here's our plan to go after them specifically. And fundraising is storytelling is fundraising. So, you know, I don't yep. think any founder can be blamed for that, but uh, sophisticated investors will be able to tease out the the difference uh, mm-hmm. between between the the hype and then the, the reality. So it's important to be cognizant of both. Yep. So I'll assume that there's there's varying sizes and uh, levels of sophistication within marketing strategies and and then the teams themselves. Uh, what about agencies? Or is there a role for agencies? Do some of these companies come in? with agencies or a mix of agency and in-house? Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I think we get a lot of confidence. There's, there's some agencies um, that we, if we know that the company has worked with them, that gives us a lot of confidence that they have their, their stuff together and their ship is in, their ship is in order. Um, Agencies to me are just another way, another form of CAC, right? You know, it's, Mm. it's, it's part of, whether your headcount is insourced or outsourced is not super relevant from the question of financeability other than, other than the question of uh, the, the persistence of your, of your engine into the future. So if you have a long-term mm-hmm. relationship with an agency or if the agency has come in and, and helped you, uh, obviously there's different types of agencies and we see that that persists, then that's great. I think agencies are, a hugely important vehicle for companies uh, uh, to help them basically tune their business correctly and focus on the right things. Uh, Obviously it takes a good agency to achieve that outcome, but if they're in place, then uh, then the company can be set up for success and that makes them financeable. So I'm a fan. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that, Michael. First of all, um, because what's going through my mind right now as, as an agency owner myself is can I help some of these companies that are coming into your platform tell a better marketing story, improve their unit economics, maybe, maybe break through with a new strategy that they haven't considered? And is there a role for agencies in that ecosystem, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think the future looks a lot like what you just described. So to wax a little bit philosophical, if you think about the value that a VC provides, I would really break it down into two big buckets. One is capital and the mm-hmm. other is advisory slash network. 
And a lot of people jokingly say advisor slash network, obviously some VCs add tremendous value, but others it's really just capital. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is their predominant value they provide. So if you think about what's happening in the capital markets and with the rise of the growth agency and the digital agency, I think that there's a, there's been a very healthy decoupling of capital and then advisory. And so you have this non-dilutive financing, which is financing that is basically saying, we're not taking any ownership. We're also not really providing any advisory support to the business, maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you use it to spend and to grow. And then you have the agency, which comes in in a fee for service or as a, you know, managing a percentage of ad spend uh, or whatever that fee model is, not necessarily taking equity, probably not taking equity. And, and the end result is you have much more sophisticated help on the growth side and much less intrusive capital on the capital side. And gotcha. so I think that, I think that agencies uh, really stand to benefit and that the most sophisticated agencies will, will understand that this decoupling is happening in the private capital markets. Um, and will realize that if we can provide a really great growth engine and then we can connect companies to fuel to help them grow, that that is a winning and differentiated model compared to agencies of the past. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by agencies of the past? I'm just curious. Um, well, past is recent history. So I, mm-hmm. I just think agencies that, that don't think about the balance sheet of the businesses that they're helping and that, and that aren't thinking about ways to increase the amount of money that they are managing for their, their customers are really missing out on a huge economic opportunity for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think you're putting your finger on agency pricing. This is something that we're wrestling with quite a lot these days. My sense is that the most common pricing for, for a performance agency is to say, we're, we, want to, we want to scale your business. We want to grow your business. The media spend is projected to go 5X, 10X. So we'll just take a fixed percentage of that media spend. So we have an upside, but that's how they participate. But it's a, it's a cost share. It's not really a value share. Is there, a, is there a better model where agencies can move towards a value sharing fee structure where they, they go more at risk, but then it's a true partnership um, with, well, with their I, companies? Yeah. I think the answer is yes. I think you've probably thought specifically about this question more than Maybe I, I have. I set you up yeah, with that question. Yeah. Um, I'm, curious. I'm curious to know your thoughts there, actually. Because if there is a value sharing model, then that makes that makes the future that I that I described uh, it makes it that it will happen much sooner, and it makes it so mm-hmm. that I'm going to be spending most of my time talking to agencies and you know convincing them to send companies to our platform uh, mm-hmm. so that they can they can share in the in this value. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts here? I'm, uh, we've been giving a lot of thought and, and talking a lot about this in the last uh, several weeks about moving to a value share model. But that means that value has to be defined. And getting back to the LTV discussion, that's, that is the signal of value. It's either LTV or maybe it's uh, this concept of enterprise value, which is maybe um, we have a pretty clear indication of how the VC market is valuing, value, valuing, valuing the business on the basis of each new customer that's acquired. And maybe 
your LTV might be 500, but your enterprise value might be a thousand per new customer. And so the first question is, well, which one do you, which one do you consider to be true value? Is it how the VC market is value, valuing you, your uh, LTV as a you know, multiple of LTV, the enterprise value, or is it LTV? Um, but in the absence of that, I think LTV is the way to go. And that means that agencies need to help clients define their LTV. That means that they, they need to have some, some data science muscle in there to say, all right, you haven't really cracked this yet, but you've got a lot of data. We can take this data and we can try to build cohorts and model this out. And we can try to understand what the lifetime value is. And that presumes that there's cohorts that, are, that have aged to their lifetime. And that's got to be there. Yeah. And, um, and actually, we are doing this now with a couple, a couple of our clients, uh, in fact, which is really um, building LTV models so that we can eventually pivot into a, into a value share fee structure. I think that unlocks, uh, that unlocks greater growth for the agency. It doesn't, it, it doesn't tie us to cost anymore because ultimately we want to get cost more and more efficient. And at some point, as cost might start to plateau, you can still drive more value. And that happens at scale too. So the agency should participate uh, constantly as value is created. So I'm, I'm all in on this. I think agencies are not, I don't think many agencies are thinking about this yet. Um, the, the percent of ad spend is pretty comfortable and pretty profitable. Mm-hmm. for a lot of agencies. And I think that, that clients are fairly comfortable with that too um, because they always have the lever to, to, to throttle ad spend if they ever think their agency is going to go rogue. Uh, but I think all this needs to change. I mean, um, if we can help clients determine lifetime value and then predict lifetime value using their data, their first-party data, and if that predicted lifetime value can be a number that is fairly accurate and determined at the time of conversion or acquisition, then an agency can say, this month, we, we delivered 1,000 conversions with a predicted lifetime value of a million dollars. And we all believe in this because it's backed by data science. We have a, we have a machine learning model that proves it. So therefore, we have, we have essentially created this incremental value for the business, and we would like the share of it. To me, that's the fairest way to do it. That's the way that aligns the interests of the parties the, the best. The agency no longer pushes and pushes and pushes for higher ad spend, regardless of, of performance or ROI. Right. And, uh, but that's a, hard, that's a hard bridge to cross, though, because um, it's, it's a lot more risk for the agency. And the agency has to have a lot of capabilities beyond just having Google ads specialists and Facebook ad specialists. They've got to have data scientists. Yeah. I mean, my, my feedback there is that if, if you came to me and said, we are working with a company, we are in a value-based contract with them, and we can predict that they are going to do extremely well uh, over the next X months or you know, X years, and they need some capital to help them grow, I would prioritize that company to the very top of the pack on, on our platform. And I would make sure that they get financing because mm-hmm. the... The, that future that you're describing, or it, it sounds like it's it's pretty much a present for 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 you guys. Oh, very early uh, days, but um, yeah, I that, hope it's the near future. Mm-hmm. That that just makes intuitive sense to me. I think where what's tricky, you you pointed out, I'm not sure that there's a gap standard for LTV, and so defining mm-hmm. it is going to depend on each business and and. And it's a, there's subjectivity in place. So agreeing on definitions is going to be key. And then as companies evolve 
and, you know, change their product offerings. And, you know, the way that LTV gets defined is, is probably going to be moving and, Mm -hmm. and you'll need to have close relationships with the companies that you're, that you're working with to make sure that everything is still rolling into a calculation that both of you guys agree on. Um, Yeah. And that's the, that's going to be the foundation of, of agreeing how much value you're actually providing to, to, to the company. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, l- lifetime value evolves, uh, cohorts age and, and new products, products develop and a lot of things change. Um, and that model would have to, to be very adaptive, maybe revisited at least every year, if not every, maybe every quarter in some cases, depending on the, the stage of the company. Um, but I can tell you that we are, we're sticking our necks out right now and talking to clients and, and prospects about this already. And I'm pretty sure that the other agencies that they're talking to or considering or that we might be competing with or not having these discussions or anywhere near it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're either still on fixed fees or, or percentage of ad spend. And we, you know, we might lose some opportunities um, because we're not apples and apples yet with the, with the, the market. But I do believe that with a few successful clients with this model, uh, an agency like us doesn't need a ton of clients anymore. We actually just really need a handful of really good ones that are ready to do this type of a partnership with us. And um, that almost turns us in a way into a quasi investor because we then decide we're taking a lot more risks. So therefore, we're really investing our own agency resources in these companies. So we have to be very selective. First and foremost, we've got to very much believe in this product that this thing is, this is a great product or a service. Usually it's a product and we believe there's a big addressable market. Uh, and these guys, these guys can own this market. Either these guys can create this market or they can come in to a, I don't know, purplish ocean and really carve out a really nice slice with our help. Um, so I like that more too, because that, that gives us the feeling that we're also, um, in a way, a quasi investor. Yeah. When, as, as I'm hearing you talk about this, I, I think there's a very real possibility that when financial historians look back on the early 2020s, they may talk about, you know, the decoupling that occurred where with this rise of alternative financing and then eventually a recoupling of, of advisory and, and capital where these new growth agencies emerge that are extremely sophisticated in helping companies grow but then also in helping them to access capital because they have unique insight into how well they're performing and they have the ability to actually influence that performance. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised at all if I saw a lot of value-based agencies out there over the emerging over the next few years. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. Yeah, I think it's time. And I think it's this decade. I I certainly hope that that we're going to see that, that happen. Um, and I think, yeah, it's a, it's a natural level evolution. Um, yeah, it, exciting. And I think part of the part of the story is also what's happening in the in the Martech space, primarily led by Google and Facebook, which is that um, digital marketing has been extremely successful for a lot of people for the last fifteen or twenty years, in large part due to the cookie, to, to third party mm-hmm. tracking cookie that allows people to be tracked at, at, a, at the individual level as they go across the web, as they go across Facebook and, and, and with their mobile devices. And 
that has allowed marketers to, uh, to, to be able to acquire uh, customers quite profitably without having to know that much about them, mm. actually, because the platforms with, with their cookie-based tracking, which is so good, um, have really done that heavy lifting for them. So if, if you don't need to do that as much anymore, uh, so third-party cookies are going away, and it's just a question of is it 2022 or 2023? Google's kicking the can down the down the down the street a little bit here. Facebook seems to be the ones under bigger pressure right now with Apple. But look, it's both of them. I mean, the, the landscape is changing, and it's very clear that marketers are, are going to be without this without this ace card very soon. So then, what happens? I mean, they've got to use their first party data. They've got to be able to generate more first party data earlier in the life cycle. Maybe even when somebody is converting, ask them some questions, understand their behavior in the product in the first. 24 hours, 48 hours, and then turn all that, all those signals and information into a predictive modeling that can say, all right, Michael came in and logged in a hundred times in the first day, or I don't know, he put his profile picture in and he invited five colleagues into the product. Whoa. Okay. This is a guy that's almost certainly not going to churn and not going to churn in six months. And and his pr- predicted value is X. I mean, these things can can just be modeled out. That's got to be the future, and it's either agencies like us that are going to help people do that, or it's going to be pure play, the data data type of consulting. I don't know what it is, but I think digital agencies are in the prime position to incorporate this service because I, that's yeah. going to be a major competitive advantage for the first movers in the next, I think, two, three, four years. Uh, I is think, use of first party data. I think that's really compelling to think about. The question that I I think time will time will tell is does that capability end up being fully in-house and and companies are going to bring data science consultants to help them figure out how to get uh, their business uh, set up properly or will there be a persistence of third-party support uh, because there's just something around the organizational model of of the agency or uh, and the and your guys' ability to attract and retain talent uh, because mm-hmm. of whatever reason, maybe it's just interesting to work on multiple projects at once. Maybe it's the fact that you have great talent and great talent wants to be there. Uh, and if, if you guys can nail that, then I see persistence uh, yeah. working out for you guys in your favor. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the, thanks for the feedback. I, I think this is also an exciting career path for a data scientist to be in a marketing agency. I mean, that's a, we have, we have one data scientist now and uh, he came from the insurance business. And I have to mm-hmm. believe that our environment is, is a lot more exciting than what he came from. And I love to give these career opportunities to data scientists and also to, I think it's a hot profession already, but, but this is just another, another channel or another, another uh, career path uh, that, that could open up if, if other agencies. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So any other thoughts on this, Michael? I think we, we, we got pretty deep here on this, on this topic. Yeah. It's been great conversation. I I guess my, my shameless self-promotion will be if, Mm -hmm. if you're interested in helping companies to raise, uh, raise money because you have insight into the fact that they'll be able to spend it. Well, we have a few hundred investors on our platform. I'd love to, I'd love Mm -hmm. to meet. Uh, I'd love to meet and talk and, and get to know you. So 
other than that, it's been a pleasure to spend time with you. And, and, uh, it's, it's always fun to wax philosophical. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, I think we're going to keep talking. It's been, it's been great. And, uh, there's interesting times ahead for, for your space and for my space. And I like this, this, uh, decoupling and recoupling, and I want to be one of the recouplers. And hopefully when we talk, uh, you know, if we talk in a year from now, we're going to say that, yeah, we, we saw this coming and now it's happening. So, uh, Nice. I'm, to I'm looking moon. forward to, to keeping <laughs> in touch on this. Great. Well, thanks for, thanks for spending the time with me, Michael. I uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks, Paris. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.